This is Transmission 2 of the Cosmic Anthropology Broadcast System. Roll Your Own Culture, a freewheeling chat with Gordon White of runesoup.com. Now, one thing straight up is that there was a glitch in the recording software and the audio is not up to the standard of which I intended. And replacing Shiva this week, there is a special guest in this broadcast, my nephew Harry. So if you can count all the times, you can hear him crying in the background, you'll get a prize, maybe. But the discussion I had with Gordon was so good that even though he offered to re-record it, very generously might I add, thank you Gordon, I thought there's no way that we would recapture the same chat that we had, so I would apply my uh, emerging audio engineer skills to salvage this as best I can and present it for you. And, you know, we'll pick things up again with Gordon down the track and see where he's at and see what uh, new insights I've got that I can add to build a great discussion with him. It's a list of all the sins and secret bank accounts of the most powerful men in the world. Yes. They broke the world, James. I invited Gordon onto the show because his work has definitely helped inform my understanding of the nature of construction of reality and i wanted to discuss this with him this is something that has been a principal occupation of mine definitely since first reading dr sleepless which led me down a a personal rabbit hole for those who've read my work on grinding so i was hooked on dr sleepless with just a little live journal post that warren ellis did just the the two lines someone stole your future don't you ever wonder who and reading back through his work, I've come to sort of appreciate, I mean, d- definitely the work that I that I study, is that it's, uh, there's a quote, I think, in, is it Captured Ghosts, the documentary, or elsewhere, where he talks about being the unfinished business of the 20th century. And reading Gordon's stuff in parallel with that really helps me broaden my sense of, of what reality actually is. I mean, and then you get into, you know, the Alan Moore... Um, horror of the real and magical thinking as well but all, all those things in combination definitely make up the cosmic anthropology worldview of looking at the pure strangeness of the universe so i'm glad it could come on so what do we talk about well chaos magic gnosticism the secret space program nazi science nazi international the billionaire worldview ozpolitics twitter facebook Social media trends in general. And all in all, building your own personal map versus the cultural hegemony of the monoculture. And that's enough of a preamble because it's quite a long chat. Uh, but I think I'll do a yet in the near future to address a couple of the things that I hadn't got to with Gordon or that we quickly um, sort of passed over. Yes. And I'll just add for I play on the recording that... There is one work which I would recommend, one recent work, apart from the obvious planetary, worth checking out, that captures some of the issues Gordon raises uh, in his blog posts. And in our discussion, which is Daniel Juarez's book, Influx, which is all about a breakaway republic, a shadow state, a hidden culture of high technology existing in parallel with what we consider our own to be and how it folds back into reality. And it's a quite a good techno thriller, and there's some really good mediations on the nature of consciousness, amongst other things thrown in. So I would recommend that book. All right, let's get to the meat of the subject. Alive and they 
So, Gordon, thanks for coming on. What I was hoping to specifically address is your, now, how do I say it? Archonology? How do you say it? Archonology. Archon- um, archonology. Like Chardonnay, the H is silent. I knew that. Yeah. <laughs> and Adolescence End? And then, what was the post that sort of followed on from that? Possibly teaching algebra to dogs? Sure. Yeah. yeah. There's loads of them. I mean, yeah. In, from a terminology perspective, I just sort of heard the word archonology in my head one day and I quite liked it. But I don't understand why people keep saying archontic um, rather than archonic because it's not demontic. No. Um, it's demonic. Uh, and yeah, it's just the, the terminology around it, I think, is quite uh, messy. And I can't work out where these specific versions of the different words came from. Me, I haven't seen them used like no, that. Fair enough. In, I mean, the terms are, you know, sort of irrelevant, especially when you use them as heuristics or sort of shorthand for a wider discussion about reality or um, uh, if they're used, I guess, to make your map less incomplete. So is that how you would summarize that sort of worldview or lack of worldview then? Yeah, uh, I think I think we've missed a trick over the last 500 years. Maybe more, maybe the last thousand years by uh, in Western esotericism by not having a more prominent voice given to um, a, a quote-unquote Gnostic uh, components to the sort of Neoplatonism that uh, that's there in in the rest of it. Um, it's I think we've definitely missed a trick. You you get it, it's probably in the West the first. So those first few centuries of Gnosticism are probably the first genuinely cosmic religion um, in the West, uh, in that it's interested and it incorporates things that are outside the bottom of this gravity well. Uh, and I think we've missed a trick there, especially as we spent the subsequent thousand or so years talking about planets and planetary angels and, and all this. So we've we've got we've got halfway there, and and there's much to be gained by sort of uh, having a larger map to incorporate uh, cosmic distances rather than just terrestrial ones right um so would you then and i'm getting this largely through your reading especially on the post um about neo-theosophy that like the mm-hmm. mahabharata is like yeah, a better version of that yep. Do you th- uh, well that's why i went to pains to sort of mention western uh when talking about gnosticism because mm-hmm. we've had a and i'm talking specifically about uh, Judaism and Christianity and uh, Islam, which, despite where their origins are, um, is has been the dominant narratives for that sort of um, Mediterranean basin and northern Europe. Uh, we've had a stronger terrestrial hijack than much of the rest of the world. I mean, um, Indian scientists, Indian astronomers will talk openly about the uh, uh, aliens are extraterrestrial phenomena because mm. it fits fine. Like they, they have, they don't understand. Um, and we're, funnily enough, the, the, the secondary hijack, which was that sort of post-war um, power vacuum that led to uh, the you know, broad-scale engineering of uh, culture mm. um, for Cold War reasons, I means we've had a double hijack, and and neither of them are really in play anymore, especially in Europe, where no one goes to church and. Not that you'd know it from looking, technically the Cold War is over. So we have um, like this legacy hijacks that lead to um, cultural and sort of scientific 
self-censorship, which you, you don't you don't experience. China doesn't have a problem with it. Japan will occasionally make enigmatic comments about uh, what's going on in space. Uh, but India is, is the best at it. They, you know, they'll, they'll put on the front page of the Times of India UFO stuff. So um, yeah, it fits their cosmology fine, and they've never had that Cold War hijack. So. Is there like I think as you've called it a like a billionaire there's like a billionaire version of reality and a pleb version yeah. of reality? As to how much of that relates to um, demonic or Magonian phenomena remains to be seen. But I mean, it is impossible to argue with the notion that the point zero 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 one percent Dupont Rockefeller Windsor um, level of reality is is entirely like they they see you if they see you they see you as um well they like their dogs i was about to say dogs <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you're you're actually an entirely separate species to them anyway right um, but in terms of specifically to do with i guess the ontology of reality there's there's still different different layers to it um it's very illuminating to, to sort of watch or trace what the various trusts over the early 20th century and up into the um, end of World War II were funding. So Guggenheim and Rockefeller trusts and um, private money coming out of the Century Club in New York. They were um, out there looking for, uh, so Gordon Wasson looking for mushrooms, all this kind of stuff. They were mm -hmm. very clearly in a, uh, and they thought they were doing the Lord's work um, for better, well, for lack of better terms. Essentially, they were genuinely looking for ways to re-engineer a, um, a moral society um, with obviously white people at the top, but that's what they were looking for. How do we... Um, and so you're only about one step away when you look at things like free education programs. That is still part of the same way of seeing the world as funding all these really weird uh, Smithsonian uh, expeditions and, and money to go look for mushrooms in Mexico and all this. They're actually quite close to each other because these people have decided by dint of being very, very rich that they get to, they are the best qualified to run the world. Uh, from the sec from the sort of second half of the 20th century, it gets highly intriguing because obviously that, um, that money and those connections form the foundation of what became um, the global sort of intelligence uh, industry. I mean, the London controlling section was all very blue bloods, um, same thing with MI6. I mean, spies used to be um, rich Englishmen just wandering around the world, and so that they sort of handed the baton into the post-war world, and a lot of that ideology quite clearly got um, incorporated in. You can't really be a spy organization without thinking that you know better than the rest of the world how it should be run. It sort of goes with the territory. Uh, and so you would, we sort of need to extend the timelines I would say back 120 years from now to look at the emergence of that kind of, if you want, a billionaire belief system. And funnily enough, by the, by the 90s, you get one sort of, they funded money, put money into uh, Esselin, Zechariah Sitchin, uh, Colin Andrews, uh, crop circle research. Um, this is on the back of um, setting up the Smithsonian and whatever happened to all the giant bones they were found, not all of them were fraudulent. Um, they've gone somewhere. So you've sort of got 120 years of building a really weird, uh, really weird belief system in the middle of it doing the seance um, with uh, Andrea Poharic and mm -hmm. Young with the nine. So that was in the 50s, you know, that's early 50s in Maine. Um, 
Well, definitely. You don't. Sorry. You don't have to go straight to. Oh, you know what I'll do? Um, this New Year's Eve, I'll I'll go with this strange Indian man and have him communicate with the the gods of ancient Egypt that are orbiting Earth in a spaceship. Like you do actually need some sort of uh, worldview to accommodate that being a really good idea. Mm. Uh, so it's the, the actual evidence you can point to to say they are operating on a different map to us is sound. As to what that map is, I'm I'm not rich enough to know. <laughs> right. Um. So definitely, I want to come back to um, Paharich and Yuri Geller and the Nine. Um, mm-hmm. I wanted to sort of go through the end of the Cold War and and sort of that. I mean, so I I have been thinking about this as as the future being stolen. But what you're kind of saying is that reality itself is a lie, not not history, but everything. Is is, is that kind of yeah, what you're saying? I, I think that's. Um nested dolls of hijack mm-hmm. so um, which potentially tells you something about reality if, if, um, if Gnosticism for instance turns out to be a not 100% inaccurate map of the human experience um, then it may work on that almost fractal basis where uh, reality has been hijacked uh, and that's that sort of um, like quote unquote pure Gnostic view of the um, human soul being trapped in Philip K. Dick's Black Iron Prison, where we are now, um, and ruled over by archons and a demiurge. So that works as a metaphor. It might describe reality slightly better than not incorporating it. But then at a nested doll level, and this is the archaeology part, mm-hmm. it definitely works as a metaphor for how, um, yeah, how, well, the reality narrative has been hijacked. Uh, and one of the biggest hijack pivot points is is the immediate post-war period. Definitely works as a metaphor or a map to think about those ideas, but it might also um, it may also describe reality in some way. Like the, uh, if you are comfortable with the idea of extra-dimensional beings yes. and uh, being sort of involved in our world in some enigmatic way. Then, if you did want to just mess around with the world, you would play these people like poor cops, mm. um, because you know, skin riding a Rockefeller will allow you to build out a world that you would like more than skin riding you or I. That's something that Grant Morrison really uh, enumerates in in The Invisibles, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I that's where my chaos magic mind came of age. Obviously, the nineties, The Invisibles, whatever. There's. Uh, I consider, I guess, things like the Archaeology series, why, they, why they're still chaos magic to me is because they are exploring those areas, taking it as a, hypo- a hypothesis to start with, and then using that fluidity of belief to go, yes, today I vehemently believe this, and tomorrow it's a metaphor. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think, I think on a fiction basis, it's easier to get people's heads around this idea because you as a uh, creative you build a complete map you don't need to work with the incomplete one mm. um, so that you can take the parts from the incomplete map like I mean those sort of underground base remote viewing area 51 big tunnel stuff like uh, with Mr. Quimper in, in the Invisibles that's kind of in the world of some of the um, spook tech archaeology stuff because there's you know hundreds of under, underground bases in the US, so that's fine. And I, I'm really intrigued by the idea of there being 
remote viewing locks so that people can't look inside these things, which is obviously in the invisibles as well. Um, whether that exists or not, that's a creative affectation that would not surprise me in the least. But um, you can, from the, from knowing that these sort of bases do factually exist, you can then build out a fictional world that allows you to explore what's going on in them. So I, I think that's the role um, fiction plays. It's, it, it's, you end up with a shorter map um, if you go the fictional route than the non-fictional. Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, you can blur the edges sort of thing. Um, so, like, so when we talk about, I mean, it's easy for people to understand that there is, and I mean, everyday people, right, that there is a classified world, but then when you talk about, so like, say, a, a classified world, but a, when you start saying a secret space program, it sort of triggers those sort of paranoid, um, yeah. <clears throat> views. But there is, so, I mean, I, I have... But there's a continuum, right? Yeah, possibly, yeah, and, um, the, my... And I think it's a good one that, I mean, when we say secret space program, we might as well say private space program. I have Google News Alerts set up for um, any news stories about new private spaceports opening. There are eight being built in the US, there's two in the UK. Um, what? 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 <laughs> These are all fucking Virgin Galactic, so we can go and have a $100,000 trip into um, upper orbit or lower orbit. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, so, and you got the rest of them, like uh, Bigelow building those weird pods um, for orbit, and obviously Elon Musk going off to mine asteroids filled with diamonds. So, it's mm. like, there, there's a private space program that you, you can again look at that. That's not contentious. Uh, I think it was privatized when everything else was, as part of that sort of sequence of when um, Bush Sr. went CIA, Veep, President. Uh, Right. In that late 70s to um, late 80s period, you had the Church Commission, which allegedly wound up things like MKUltra. Um, but all these things were surfacing about the CIA um, sort of collapsing Central American countries that voted too left and all this shit. And everyone's like, what the fuck? Uh, to avoid another Church Commission, you privatize stuff, you, you get it out of government money, allegedly. Um, it's still paid for by the taxpayer if the money goes to a corporation. But a corporation isn't a government employee, so you don't have these committees. Mm. And um, that's actually what happened. And he made some changes when he was VEEP to the laws in the early 80s. And this is, I think, the, the sort of uh, the fulcrum to it. Uh, in the early 80s, when he was vice president, he sort of had some law changes where uh, any uh, corporate citizens or private uh, top secret clearance type people. Um, were overseen by the vice president, but you see them moving out of things like the space program and, and Reagan allegedly closing Star Wars, well, did we bring all the stuff down? Or is it still up there? Same thing with Harp. Last year when everyone said Harp is closing, no it isn't, they just sold it. So, oh. Yeah, it didn't close. You don't close it. Um, it was sold. <laughs> right. Uh, but the articles were like, oh, we don't need this anymore, so we're closing it. And then it would be like, oh, it, it's being sold off to blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, so it's not being closed. You fucking sold another state-owned uh, investment. And that's where they all go. And then they kind of vanish from having to appear on reports or respond to Freedom of Information Act requests. So that's where we got the private, uh, I think, Secrecy was part of the reason, other than just that's how they see the world, for the privatization of all these assets. And now we're reaping that whirlwind as 
uh, it's the billionaires going into space, and and NASA's just sitting there saying maybe we should. Uh, NASA's sitting there holding competitions for things like building a submarine to go into space. Uh, what what is this? <laughs> yeah. You know, come on. Yeah, stop trying. Um, no, I mean, at at the end of at the what did, what did Truman call the Nazis? The non ardent Nazis, I think he called them when they were yes. doing Operation Paperclip. Yeah, something like that. Um, he his his involvement with that was very interesting because um, he uh, he wanted the man like Eisenhower didn't want the man Eisenhower fought and he had um, uh, what was the Jewish Defense League called then going what what are you doing, Mr. President? <laughs> Right. Like, you know, and it's a very good question. Um, but uh, Truman didn't have as much of a, a as much of a problem with them. But it, I mean, the numbers are potentially up to about seven thousand of them there, and um, you get them in in places like uh, Fort Meade and the sort of general area around White Sands um, straight away. So they they went straight into kind of the twin lights of what became. The kind of 50-year shadow state experiment with things like mind control and uh, chemical testing on humans, and obviously the space program. So they pretty much they went all over the place, but there's a great big chunk of them there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Fort Meade and and Whitestone. And um, in I think it's one of Dr. Farrell's books. He's talking about how the ones that were in in and around Whitestone would be driving around in Mercedes, which um, very difficult to get in Arizona immediately after the war. And right, so, right. And so they, they could wander on and off base. They had their own post office boxes off base and the rest of it. And there they are with Mercedes. Now, exactly why they needed private uh, post office, why people who are formerly enemies and brought over, why they need post offices, mm. post office boxes, and where they get their expensive cars from is quite interesting because I think that demonstrates um, that sort of Nazi international... I think you see one tiny aspect of Nazi international because they would have been communicating with Argentina and potentially um, the Soviet Nazis, um, who, by the way, I mean, the Soviets were ahead in the space program, mm. um, and they had less Nazis for a while. So you could sort of potentially, I mean, his hypothesis is that the Nazi international was operating in a sort of multi-market capacity. They were remaining in, in communication with each other. Um, they were doing weird torsion testing in Argentina, they were doing whatever they were doing in Soviet Union, we don't know, and they were doing what became the Apollo program in, uh, in the US. Yeah, his videos that you posted on that Spooktack um, entry blog, blog post was definitely the most interesting for me um, that yeah. I watched. He's, um, I mean, he's been, he's been doing it for decades, and he has a PhD in patristics. Uh, his research is sound, inevitably, I mean, uh, his research is sound, um, his conclusions are his own. Uh, so he has a lot of documentary evidence uh, to look into it, but he does the things like following um, that sort of standard oil um, DuPont chemical uh, Nazi treasurer um, IG Farben interconnectedness, where you mm. see that um, that kind of both sides of the Atlantic corporate infrastructure survived not only unscathed but made buckets of money moving through the war and. Um, it did, it's sort of irrelevant, and we're, we're still living in a world where that can happen. It's sort of irrelevant um, to a corporation which countries are at war. Exactly, exactly. I mean, to me, it gives the sense that, um, and like, we're we're taught that Germany lost the war, but it seems more like that the Nazis were just absorbed into 
the West well, and the yeah, East. Generally, lost the war. The Nazis didn't. I mean, even Patton said that they should have been pointing their guns the other way. I mean, the the sympathy for um, the Nazi perspective, not necessarily just about the Jews, although that was sort of a bit there, like, oh yeah, whatever, Jews. Um, but the, the terror of, of Bolshevism and communism, um, that was at the heart of why, uh, I mean, it wasn't, it was potentially a bit of um, Jew suspicion that led to the Catholics helping um, get a whole bunch of Nazis out, like uh, over 100,000 of them uh, at the end of the war. But it was also, like, if the Soviets make it to Rome, game over Catholic Church. Right. So, um, that, because it's the same thing, if they made it, um, if they made it to the UK, uh, game over House of Windsor. Like, so this sort of, the legacy elite control mechanisms are more terrified of the Soviets than they are of the Nazis, because, like, you know exactly what the Soviets or the communists will do. Mm. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, Germany, Germany lost the war well and truly. Um, it was bombed to crap and cut in half, um, and it still has an occupying force <laughs> in it now. Uh, the Nazis didn't. The Nazis were fine. Mm. Well, the ones, you know, I, that's a bit flippant, but not that flippant. Loads of them got away and loads of money got away. So, I don't know, did you see the Captain America, the Winter Soldier? Yep. I quite like that. I wasn't sure what the angle was. Um, I wonder if that one sort of either slipped through the net or um, was being used to erode the potency of that historical fact. Because a lot of the stuff that are coming out with him, like, yeah, not many Americans know that. Exactly, right. Uh, and I just wonder if it isn't part of an erosion of the potency of that message. Like, um, The Matrix kind of achieved a similar thing mm -hmm. uh, in the 90s where it eroded the, um, the value of of a, of a Gnostic message, and in fact, uh, Gnostic apotheosis became quite grim by the end of the series, like it wasn't a, um, the prison was better than the freedom. Uh, I don't think that was by design. I don't think it was by design with Winter Soldier either, but I think inevitably as um, uh, Hollywood harvests potent ideas, they get less potent as they um, yeah. spread into the monoculture, and so now that will be just become a normalized bit of I don't even want to say comics, I want to say post-comic industry. Mm -hmm. um, right now, allegedly, everyone's a comic fan, having not read one. Um, and I, I just can't, uh, yeah, I, I saw it, I liked the film, it was fine, whatever. Um, but I was genuinely surprised at how much uh, food for historical film was in there. That be, I mean, the Americans have gotten better, I would say, in the last... 15 years of uh, act being uh, more self-critical of, of parts of, particularly the military, it's always been there. I mean, that's why their comedy shows rule the world and um, the French ones don't. They're quite good. They've always been good at being culturally um, self-critical, so Seinfeld and whatever. Right. But uh, the, the military and uh, the American vision of the, of the 20th century was off the table. <laughs> no, no criticizing. No criticizing the military, no making comments, like, unless the wars were long gone and it was about Vietnam or whatever. Um, but they're getting better at realizing, hang on, is it, is it possible we're the bad guys? And uh, I mean, the UK, it's quite, the UK did that after it packed up its empire and said, oh shit, we were the bad guys. Mm. <laughs> Awkward. Mm. Um, you could see America going through that whole, oh, what do you know? So I, mean, I was glad to see that stuff in there, but it inevitably erodes the, the potency of it and it 
it puts it in the safe space of monocultural fiction where those relationships don't need to be looked at or, or, or less relevant. Yeah. So in terms of, of the, the Nazi science, there's, there's the Nazi science we know. So we know, we know Werner von Braun and, um, and those guys building the rockets, right? And there's mm-hmm. the stuff that um, Farrell has yeah, Farrell, yeah. sort of reconstructed. But then there has to be an element that's just completely still within the like black budget secret space world, right? Well, if, if it still has uh, national security implications, then it doesn't have to, it doesn't get declassified at that sort of 50-year point. Same thing mm. with UK. Like if, if the stuff is still in play, it doesn't have to be declassified. I don't think they had, uh, I don't think the things that are classified are, are high technology stuff. I don't think there's, um, I don't think they had flying sources. Uh, but there is, po- there's a possibility that some of that is in there. They were certainly messing around with some weird uh, occult stuff that you do start to see. I mean, if you read uh, Nick Redfern's final events, you do start to see that in that weird sort of Parsons Crowley um, emerging shadow state world, there was the the opportunity to call these things rather than aliens, non-human entities. So they may well have been part of that in there. I'm, they they definitely had other tech. I mean, they they beat everyone to over the horizon radar. Um, they used so, and there was a whole bunch of um, nuclear waste or sort of excess nuclear material buried in salt mines found in Germany and Poland the last few years. So they had, uh, they were nuclearizing something. Mm. So they, like, there are, that story of what they actually had and the tech that they had available is, um, is anybody's guess. But that's why um, the Kamaslav, so basically their version of um, Q-Branch, Right. Was, uh, was prioritized over uh, pretty much any other target. Uh, like the Americans had to beat the Russians to the Kamaslav to get there, who <laughs> to get the good stuff. And they're all heading for it, like some kind of holy grail towards the end of the war in Germany. Um, and that's sort of the to the bit to go the spoils um, notion. So we don't, we don't know what extra stuff they had. Um, uh, you, you see its evidence in the beginning of space medicine and other stuff. I mean, that, to have that. To have an expendable workforce to experiment on um, was probably jumped them ahead uh, from an experimentation perspective further than anyone else because we you can't just like if if the Nazi bell was real mm-hmm. the stories of how that works meant that you pretty much lost the cleanup crew every time you did it because it was so irradiated in there yeah you'd send in a bunch of Jews so they clean it they die and get some more Jews. Um, we would have struggled with that in the West uh, at the same time. We potentially would have done it, um, but they did. <laughs> yeah. They had they had expendable workforce, so you could do things like spin children uh, in a high-speed centrifuge to see when their insides would would liquefy, and those kind of experiments were um, the findings from those experiments went into the space medicine that got the Americans into space. Right. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, we just had, like at Woomera, they just sent in the disabled and the aboriginals. Exactly. Um, so, like, it's not like we haven't had expendable workforces. It's just the Germans inevitably were much more efficient at expending their expendable workforces. Mm. Mm. So another thing that's occurred to me this week, because um, I've been looking at, I just did a big blog post on China and how they're sort of developing. 
Yeah. And um, we know that they're sort of recreating a lot of Cold War tech. And we know that they're, uh, well, you know, they're hacking the hell out of everything they can get their hands on, right? Mm -hmm. So how much do you think they are trying to get their hands on this sort of black budget, secret space, shadow state tech with the more cosmic worldview, especially? Um, China has a, a worldview advantage over the West. In, the, in our high imperial days, we had supreme ambition. Um, I, like when I was living in Auckland, if you go up to the museum in the middle of the domain that looks out over sort of, um, well, downtown Auckland and, and the harbour, you realise when this was built, Auckland was a shithole. I mean, uh, Queen Street wasn't paved. Mm -hmm. um, there were just you know, so there was mud and whores and whaling ships and like it was a dump. Uh, and on top of it is the, this hill with, with these manicured gardens and this sort of neoclassical palace, um, which was the museum. And the, the, that sort of imperial ambition that one day this will be a great extension of the British Empire, a manifestation of something that will never go away, uh, it, it's, I, fascinates me. And we don't have that uh, ambition for any of our buildings or any of our plans anymore, largely because they've been prioritized. Whereas China is on the mission. I mean, did you see the article the other day, um, they're building artificial islands? Yeah, that's that's what I was riffing off yeah. on my blog post. Yeah, they're building artificial islands because they're getting a bit sick of having to argue some, and it's just such a Chinese solution. Like it's it's quite impressive. Like oh, the Philippines claim these ones, the Taiwanese claim these ones, the Vietnamese claim these ones. We do claim them all to be clear, but rather than argue over it, mm. I'm just going to build my own fucking islands in the middle of the ocean and say, there, yeah, these are Chinese, and you, that that is an ambitious solution. Like you. No one in Whitehall would say that. No one would say, well, why don't we build some artificial islands? Mm. <laughs> we, we lack that ambition. So whether they're trying to, whether they're coming from behind and trying to get their hands on um, shadow state tech uh, is, is sort of irrelevant um, because much of that would have been privatized anyway, so it's not really in anyone's hands. Right. Um, and, uh, but also, it's, it's irrelevant. Like, um, whilst America still has a significantly larger mil uh, military, they are, China's building ships at a faster rate. Mm. So um, mathematically, if uh, military spending goes the way it does in, in the US, then eventually China will have a bigger navy. Uh, and it's also got the ambition to build islands and, and what have you. So it doesn't even need recourse to um, suborbital directed energy weapons or any of that stuff, which I have no doubt that they're playing with as well. Again, you have unlimited money and an unlimited workforce. Um, yeah, you know, it does really escalate it in a way that um, the West would struggle to keep up. It certainly has unlimited money because it invents it, but uh, its its workforce is only near unlimited, um, which would be the military-industrial complex, whereas China's is full unlimited. <laughs> mm. But the economic eventually you'll see, and it will come from China. Eventually you'll see, um, as a result of Decolorization, uh, increasing energy requirements, and an increasing pollution situation. The the lid on non-hydrocarbon energy will be blown in China first because it's more efficient. Um, the oil remains as it is because it's sort of the you can't really have a fiat global reserve currency; it has to be backed by something. Mm -hmm. And so the global reserve currency is backed by oil. Uh, control of the sea lanes and the fact that oil is um, traded in US dollars, uh, makes it like gold, literal black gold for the US dollar. 
uh, and that's the economic reason for, uh, or the economic disincentive to keep non-hydrocarbon energy from uh, a high degree of take-up that's irrelevant to China, and China has some pressing problems. So it's that's that kind of ambition. The country that builds its own islands will go, ah, oh, well, oil's too expensive in our country's polluted, let's go with something uh, non-hydrocarbon based. Yeah, they were, I think they had a French company building whole um, sustainable cities for them mm-hmm. at one point. Yeah. Not sure if they could build them. If over unity energy exists in some deep dark corner of the shadow state on Earth now, uh, and it might, even if it exists theoretically as something that fits in, in a small bedroom going, oh, check it out. <laughs> over unity energy is a thing. Um, that thing will be surfaced and used on a, a large scale in China first because it needs it. Absolutely. I agree. Um, okay, so I wanted to shift gears, if that's possible. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, in Adolescent's End, you're really talking about embracing the Eschaton, right? Yeah, sure. As I interpret what you're saying, is sort of trying to reconcile this, this billionaire history, this secret history, that, or, or, or sort of re, reinvent consensus reality, basically. Yeah? Is, 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 is I'm not interested in consensus reality. Um, I think consensus reality is, is the ship that's sinking. Um, ah. I'm not that interested in reinventing consensus reality at all, this idea of amplifying the signal. It, the signal decays or degrades the more you amplify it. Okay. So I don't really care. <laughs> okay. Because what, what I wanted to come back to was um, basically what you were quoting um, Jacques Vallée in general with the idea of UFOs and signs of wonder as sort of consciousness shifting beacons of a sort if i'm yeah, if i'm getting it right that works. Yeah. Um, um and works. sorry spectra thank you to yuri geller as a, and and valus to pkd as sort of higher dimensional machine intelligences as sort of a wider cosmology and if it's not for consensus reality then for us yeah fringe whatever how will you describe yeah. it well, well, um, to layer on top of the PKD analogy, um, you get sex rather than uh, you get sex with an understanding uh, or a, a radically different experience of reality to the monoculture throughout history. And they end up inevitably being violently suppressed. Um, the one example of where it looked to break out was over the Cathars and look how that ended. Mm. Um, so yeah, I'm not that interested in consensus reality. I, 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 I spend too much time listening to people talk on London buses and I'm like, <laughs> nope. Uh, someone else can, someone else can go and try and Johnny Appleseed you idiots to, um, uh, to, to liberation. It's not really, I don't think it works. I don't think the conditions of reality allow for a truly liberating worldview to exist on a macro scale. Um, I think they can only exist on an individual scale. I think that's sort of by design that we have to find that path ourselves. So I'm, I'm not looking to spread the message um, in a monocultural sense. But like your interpretation of, and as a result, that's why I think the eschaton is important to fold back into a Western esoteric cosmology because we, we're missing a trick. We're actually missing the end of the movie. And it's been the end of our movie for 7,000 years minimum. 
maybe a bit more when you get the sort of coalescing of not only the language groups but the mythological components that go into building and I mean everything I mean building Sumeria Egypt Greece the rest of it these things happened in that uh, sort of uh, northern part of India um, up into the steppes um, Eurasian area we get like our whole basic story is the same in all of them beginning with the tree and the dragon and sort of ending with the end of everything and the pieces change in the middle but it, it goes through epochs mm-hmm. and I um, I think that's important. People keep asking me, what can we do? What can we do about um, the collapse of the biosphere and, and the complete centralization of the Western economic model out of our hands and into the hands of 80 families? Well, what can you do? Like, <laughs> that, uh, that's what you can do is get your head around the fact that these things have happened and are happening. That's the reality of, of you living it. Because otherwise, this idea that you can... You can be whatever you want to be and, and join Greenpeace and everything will be fine and carry on watching television. Um, it's still there in Western magic and I want to excise it because that's it shouldn't be there. That doesn't help. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I'm not sure where to go from there. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate it's grim, um, but it is grim. Like, why, why are we painting it otherwise? Why are we painting it as... The situation is anything but grim. If, if we look at it, then we can do things, and those things are um, relearning or, or consciously building uh, weak network links that you actually want, rather than ones that you you need, like uh, colleagues that you know or, or, or normals. Sort of, we have the opportunity if we see the world um, with an increase in clarity to build a network that can respond to that. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the steps, uh, and and leaning towards creative expressions that are about this and can help sort of explore this idea rather than just you know whatever the hell is on TV, um, which I don't even yeah I work in advertising I don't remember the last time I saw a TV ad um, I I'm useless in uh, around the um, water cooler in the office because of my I have no idea what you're talking about. I, I've never seen a singing program in my life, and I don't know what this ad is. So, um, yeah, it's weird, but it's like that's that's by design. I've, I've, I've built out a network for the world as is, rather than pretending that these things are normal. No, definitely. Um, so, okay, so the example of like the guitars, if I'm saying it right. Yeah. Um, so, something I was reading recently was Tim Leary's How to Start a Religion, mm-hmm. and it does seem that sort of echoed with, with, with what you've been saying and what other people have been saying about, you know, just sort of tuning out and, um, is what is it? Tune in, drop out, tune in. Anyway, turning off the, he calls it the TV, the TV set reality. Yeah, tune in, turn off, drop out. Or turn off, tune in, drop out. Whatever. Yeah, I know what you mean. And it does seem better than to sort of form, not small groups of resistance, but small groups of, reality facing people is that kind of what we're saying yeah it's interesting we don't really have the words for it but that's again why i'm not that interested in uh changing the monoculture because i don't think you can um yeah small groups of lifeboat survivors um yes i like that so that yeah i that's fine i mean that's that that makes sense to me i mean that seems to be how these things run um, mm-hmm. 
and anywhere that seems to be how they like you you find those these shortest routes to liberation inevitably become um, the most violently suppressed and I think that's um, that's not like some kind of new world order conspiracy I think that's a condition of reality that these things can't um, the the quest has to be difficult or it's not a quest um, I, I struggle with that having an occult blog where people well like leave a comment asking me a question and it would have taken longer to leave a comment than it would to look the answer up themselves like am I the help desk am I, don't yes I, I will never answer your question because um, then you won't have the answer mm. uh, and I think that is a condition of reality that is effectively immovable that you have to go on that um, you can have companions on the journey but you're all like everyone's map is different you can't just go oh here's a system and that's my eternal challenge with or problem well one of my many problems with things like the OTO or what have you the idea that you can uh, use some kind of apron-wearing, um, wife-swapping, Masonic pyramid model of, um, uh, of spiritual achievement and sort of map that to um, what is effectively a binary journey of either asleep or awake. It doesn't, it doesn't grid. Um, and that's the same thing. We, we have this sort of 2014 expectation that reality will be delivered to the couch with the pizza that you just ordered on your app. And uh, mm. it doesn't work like that. <laughs> it's a very domesticated worldview. Yeah, yeah, with, but that's why I'm not that interested in making everyone else up. I mean, mm. yeah, there's some of the responses um, to say Pete Nelkistis's rewilding witchcraft article <laughs> astounding. The idea that um, they don't think witchcraft is wild. And this is from people who are allegedly have been studying um, Dionysus for 20 years. And I'm like, well, I think you need to keep studying. I don't think 20 years is enough. Uh, and that is like, but they'll never, they, that's monocultural, they'll never get it. Um, and that's not my problem. They can come back and do it again in another lifetime maybe. But um, that's the bit that <clears throat> I potentially need to continue to communicate when I talk about this stuff on the blog because, uh, yeah, <laughs> like there's, I'm, I'm sharing all this stuff, it impacts us all. There are um, the things we need to face, but it's it's an individual facing rather than a here's the map to get out of it. Now I haven't read this article, but you just said the word rewilding. Yeah. And that for me is is definitely one of the key terms in terms of constructing a, a map of the future that that at least I like. Sure. And a sort of a return of like a more spiritual world. Yeah. Like a more um, authentic engagement with nature, and that's kind of like my sense of what Dionysus and all that is sort of about. Well, yes, I mean, it's um, uh, the experience of, well, the article is very good. You'll find it at um, Scarlet Imprint. Um, oh, yes, of course. Yeah, but the, the whole purpose of the article is that um, witchcraft is a response to, or should be, a, well, one wild, but as a result, a response to the sort of biospherical collapse that we're going through. Um, and and not just on a uh, let's go out and, and pick up garbage in the park, um, but on in a relationship to the spirit world sense. Uh, and it's true. I mean, it, it, it's a very good article. And those are the things, rather than um, sort of parroting uh, what's the word I'm looking for here, like English 
like eight English folk festivals about a harvest that we've not only been detached from, but has been permanently detached from any sense of regularity, um, thanks to the biospheric collapse that we have. Um, but we well, no, instead we'll we'll talk about the harvest. You know, oh look, it's Beltane or it's fucking whatever, and that um, that is a uh, that map is not up to the task of witchcraft in 2014. That old map is not up to the task, and that's sort of the point of the article. Um, but yeah, it's, apparently that is unpalatable. Uh, in, in like some of the response, most of the response has been unanimously positive. But uh, well, that's an oxymoron. Most of the response has been positive, uh, but there's some like stonkingly like inconceivable responses floating around to it. So it's worth looking into just to sort of see the range. But that's why there's no sense in. Uh, not even changing the monoculture. There's no sense in changing the microculture. There's sharing the stuff, and those who, I guess, have the stomach to build a better map, do so, and then that those that don't, don't. Yeah, that's true. Um, uh, a, a comment, or I, uh, when I, um, how do I put it? Okay, does so it show the Legend of Korra? I, I asked you if you'd watched it. Yeah, I do. Um, and I, I since learnt that, um, in in its third season, so it's heavily based on anime and features a lot of um buddhism in it mm-hmm. but in the in its third season it's gone through and i don't know if this is from what's her name anyway it's a harmonic convergence mm-hmm. um but it is bringing the spirit world back into the real world so that people can see the spirits and whatever and it's an interesting compared to like you know adventure time that people are watching now compared to freaking transformers or like what my generation had, had, had grown up with it gives a much um like the phrase sense of wonder as one word mm-hmm. sure. sort of worldview that i think can let um the monoculture of such yeah, at, sure. at, at least be initiated on that quest to sort of it sort of slips under yeah, the radar it, yeah. sorry and that's hopefully what good fiction would do mm. potentially what it's always done i mean where you where do you draw the line between um, fiction and uh, inspired or channeled spiritual texts that do it? I mean, uh, Chris Knowles mentioned it in an interview he just shared on his blog, um, but it was an earlier interview, that a lot of the Gnostic material, he says, looks like fan fiction, like Jesus fan fiction, um, which I think is an interesting way of looking at it. Um, so that if you think of like the um, the Jesus in the Gospel of St. Thomas, or um, the Hymn of the Pearl, and also that's in Acts of Thomas. Anyway, they would have had, fulfilled a similar function as something like Legend of Korra, where you can experience this um, text, and right. the, that's the inciting incident. That's where you go, oh, shit. Uh, and it starts you on the what if, which then starts you on the yes, okay, which then starts you on the how do I... Um, sort of snowball mm-hmm. so it sounds like a good show is, my, <laughs> is the answer to that i mean uh, that's they are and it's for the kids yeah which is great yeah trying to work out today what somebody mentioned kids you mean like under 10 potentially oh, cool um the de- definitely show on nickelodeon i think it's a nickelodeon or cartoon network show yeah um well that's good i mean we don't have that many of them anymore we had this sort of it seems to go in that um 11 year cycle thing um not really but like it, there's there's a casual alignment to it but um, we haven't had that many uh inspirational 
shows like that in a while. I mean, the difference between X Files in the '90s and the Fringe in the '90s is, is night and day. I mean, that's just this sort of yeah. grim, boring, repetitive materialism. Yeah, um, I've actually just been rewatching the X Files, and it's um, yeah, it's amazing. Know, last year, or the year before, beginning to end, every single episode of Murphy. Thought I'd seen them all, turns out I hadn't. Now I can confidently say I have. It is amazing though to watch it after so many years and then reading the Chris Knowles mythic um, mythic arc guides to it as well. Mm. There's more in there than I, I suspected. Yeah, I, I also can't believe how much the um, uh, the spook state has changed so much in such a short amount of time. I mean, um, Scully and Mulder in the, in the earlier series get bullied around by um, like sheriffs of bumfuck nowhere town. You think if that happened in 2014, if the sheriff tried to get up in the face of a of a fed in 2014, he'd be shot yeah. in the face. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's insane. And that's uh, really so you you see this ballooning of that um, sort of private deep shadow state. Like right now, it's it's not even like it's always been there. It's it's enormous and it's kind of emerging in view. It's just that's really fascinating to watch. You know, the idea that and yeah. Um, the, the, then you can kind of see that growth of distrust or the erosion of trust from series one where the FBI agents are broadly doing the Lord's work to the end of the second last movie where they are very much not. <laughs> right. I, n- I never made it that far. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you see in the, as, the, as some of the long-running um, storylines build out and you get that combination of um, private elite and... Uh, deep state that it sort of taints the show's view of uh, federal agents. If that makes sense, mm-hmm. it's definitely uh, in, you know contempt. Like I don't know if you saw there's a show called Alcatraz, which was on briefly. So another yeah. J.J. Abrahams vehicle that went nowhere, and they would just rock up and just say in their suits and just say put him in the black SUV like it's a power word, right? Mm-hmm. And they do it and drive off, and that's that's your contemporary spook. Yeah, culture. exactly. And they don't even need to conceal it. They could, you know, mm. you could probably black bag um, the six o'clock news presenter during the six o'clock news and nothing <laughs> nothing would happen uh, about it. Um, what was I listening to the other day where if Watergate happened now, would it make the front page? Like, given the stuff that um, the president... Mm. can get away with mm. if Watergate happened now it wouldn't make, like it might make the front page but it would be something different the next day it wouldn't be this sort of multi-month bring a president down situation like it's the, the whole thing has gone entirely rogue the stuff that Obama has done is worse than Watergate yeah and I think like, Nixon started like, the EPA not, not like a little bit worse it's a thousand times worse yeah and yet there he is yeah and he's the the good president Mm-hmm. He's the left wing. Oh, I don't know how much attention you're paying to Australian politics, but they're fanning the flames here. Um, no, I dip in and out. I can't stand. I can't stand his face. <laughs> yeah, I have to <laughs> so live here, man. I get my news refracted through my parents, who uh, um, are having a kind of Obama experience because they voted for him, and uh, like you're going to reap that whirlwind, and they're reaping. <laughs> yeah, it's just that that um, like I, I said on. Twitter earlier today. It's like no one watched um, The Power of Nightmares, Adam Curtis. Yeah, exactly. Um, but Australians wouldn't have. Um, and I know I know what you mean about fanning the flames. Like uh, they're turning. Australia is going through its um, 
what the UK and the US went through mm. in the 90s. That's what it, it's building out now. But that's because it's part of the Pacific pivot. Um, it's it, it's going to turn it into a not necessarily radical right, but permanently right, large Bahrain uh, in, in the South Pacific. Um, God. It has, it has energy reserves and strategic importance, which obviously the US has been using for ages. And you're seeing a very, very definite engineering of culture, um, which, yeah, it is manifested as that. It's basically, the repeat of America. You get uh, isolationism and pro individual property rights and all the rest of it, which is sort of music to Australia's ears, given that. Um, Property has been an obsession since um, Howard, um, but it, like up, up until the end of the 80s, it's actually a very nice place. I mean, we had leisure time was was a priority rather than this kind of aspirational property claptrap. And um, so there's there's a uh, a cultural and intellectual poverty that is being engineered into um, Australia so that it doesn't actually have the word to correctly discuss what's happening to it. <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah, it really is. It's um the political news corp machine is just insane. Yeah. And it's um and, um, sorry. The ABC is uh is an intellectual lightweight. Um so there's uh, no one of talent really across the spectrum from the left to the right in, in commercial media, um mainstream commercial media that uh can move the needle on these things. Some of that's by design. Um, I just think, yeah, and it's, it's fascinating. And, and it gets more and more difficult. I've been even trying to talk about issues, um, even trying to talk about Ukraine uh, with my family. They just blink. <laughs> the version of what's happening in Ukraine uh, is very different in, in, in the homeland than it is outside of it. And they're like, what are you talking about? And I actually have friends who are ABC journalists, and um, I went to school with them, whatever. They are not up to the task of correctly interpreting the complexities of the Ukraine situation. And those are the people that are uh, giving a allegedly non-commercial view of news in Australia. It's, uh, oh, there's no such it's thing. Yeah. And I mean, there's not, um, there's the, the commercial and then there's just the, like, what passes for fair and balanced, where you have to repeat the lie and then some sort of token analysis of it. Yeah. I just but, uh, I can't believe it. I, I don't think there's a, well, in, certainly not in my family, I don't think Australians have developed the sophistication of media consumption that is required. Admittedly, they're being fed a very bad diet of media, mm. but um, you, in America, because they've had it for so long, and admittedly, it's, it's orders of magnitude worse, but um, the the awareness that anything that you see on CNN or NBC is claptrap to the point of probably being the newspeak opposite <laughs> to mm. what you're being told is growing. Um, and that's very good. Um, it's very, there's minimal, there's not much in the way of uh, alternatives, but uh, I don't see that same, like say people my parents' age, I don't see that same awareness of um, the treachery of the media landscape uh, in Australia. Mm. That's that's a real downer to end on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, but it's it's a process. It, it will eventually get there. It potentially will be too late, like it was for the US and the UK. Um, but it's 
it's a process. Um, mm. I I'm not sure whether it can be saved. I do think, um, yeah, at this rate, I'm not sure whether it can be saved. I mean, the the discourse has been so um, has been eroded, also uh, like wasted away, like unused limbs in Australia for so long that trying to have a rational discussion of um, like we didn't really have a 9-11 but you just say vote people and it does the same thing <laughs> and that's been very aggressively manufactured of course it has yeah that's why i use 9-11 as the example yeah um there are and that's the inability to have that's what they don't have the words anymore to have the discourse um at, at the level of complexity that it probably requires and you just sort of like pavlovian dogs ring these bells and uh and, and the discourse spins off in in one direction or the other. I mean, even uh, the same thing is happening here with obviously uh, immigration discussions as well. But across the left and the right, um, you can now no longer have a consenting opinion to oh we need we need less immigrants or we need to do this we need to do that. Like you, it's because it's so suicidal to say otherwise or to even say well probably here's here are some rational steps as to how that happens. Nope. <laughs> it's, uh, it's closed down and everyone sings from the same uh, from the same sheet mm. I guess that um, to sort of loop it around that sort of maps or that that is about maps really yeah mm. so it's that um, everyday map of reality projected against the overall historical uh, macro cosmic map that we were talking about at the beginning well sure that's how something like Gnosticism can be useful because it works as a metaphor, it may well describe reality. It works well on a microcosmic level as both a descriptive reality and a deliberately chosen map, because we we basically got back to the very beginning there. Where we're like, well, how? What are the archons? And like, are they real? Mm-hmm. And even if they aren't, the universe is behaving in a way that allows you to use them as a metaphor, um, and and improve your life as a, as a result potentially. Um, and that was sort of the eschaton thing. I mean, like, let's look at this. Things aren't getting better. Mm. Um, things are not going to be solved by some kind of great technocratic march into the future. Um, so you're, you're saying the iWatch isn't going to fix everything? No, it might. <laughs> yeah, and that... <clears throat> that's where I, know, I appreciate that it's weird, and I kind of get why um, Jacques Vallée has confused people for, for so long, because um, I, this is... Um, the second interview or, or conversation or whatever uh, I've done in the last week or so, and um, it turns out it's very difficult to be nailed down to what are the archons mm-hmm. when they're operating as potentially things that exist, as well as um, map shortcuts, as well as personal metaphors. Um, and but that I think is good um, because getting your head around what the archons are on that sort of multi-layered. Uh, well, with a multi-layered approach, you can use that learning to sort of scale up and and have a bit more sophisticated conversations about um, extra-dimensional phenomena and non-human entities, which I think we still uh, well, everyone struggles with it, but I think it's it's unbecoming of Western esotericism that our um, descriptors for extra-dimensional phenomena are still so shit. Mm-hmm. And if you know if if it's that bad within the esoteric tradition, there's nothing in the monoculture to even like. It's nowhere on the map. It's like completely. 
No, yeah. it's, it's nowhere on the map except for when it occasionally shows up in art, like the Invisibles. Um, so it does. It, it will. It can randomly show up uh, as is its way. Um, but yes, it's not really. Um, or in a few episodes of the X Files, that kind of thing. Yeah. But even that—that's alternative. Like it's not. True. I mean, it wasn't in the '90s. That was what's so fascinating about it. I mean, that, that show was. Um, that was, I think that was the most watched drama, uh, most watched um, drama in the U.S. when it was. I mean, the, uh, in Australia when we were watching it, when it was on Channel Ten at nine thirty, mm-hmm. uh, that was the most watched show, and that's amazing. Like, mm. Not the whole time, but the first three series certainly were. Mm. What the hell? So we we definitely <laughs> um, now it's singing shows and Bake Off. Yeah, I try to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've tuned out of that. Yeah, I, I, I have no idea what's on, um, which is fine. You know, that's sort of the point. Uh, there are you have to work harder for it, but I guess there are uh, alternatives. I mean, I, I think I spend more on media now than I ever have. I mean, there's enough um, sort of documentaries and things that are available. They're not expensive, like US two ninety nine and whatever online. But I actually think I spend more on media now than I ever have um, mm-hmm. because there are other things that you can consume because you just look at it and go, well, yeah, but, uh, that's not great. And you also end up doing a lot of rewatching. <laughs> no, I've definitely done that. Um, yeah. It's it's always, I find it very instructive to go back with a different mind view to rewatch something. And that's definitely how I'm finding the X-Files. Um, what, what I, um, like, so do you follow Josh Ellis on Twitter? Do you know yeah. what I mean by that? So, do you remember he wrote an article called about taste tribes some time ago? I vaguely ring, I vaguely rings about, but um, yeah, I, I definitely follow him on Twitter. Um, that idea is definitely sort of melded for me with uh, talking about um, Timothy Leary and just being able to like roll your own culture now for some of us at least. Yeah. So you don't have to watch TV when there's iTunes or BitTorrent or you know whatever yeah. and twitter any of these kind of platforms or yeah kickstarter documentaries or whatever it is exactly um it's true it's also a moving or a movable feast um because the sec for instance is now going to start bringing in rules for crowdfunding um, oh they're going to be tax and control rules so uh because it's, it's growing too fast like this is the um this is the archons in action mm-hmm. uh because that's non-taxable, non-shadow state monitored money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so now the SEC is going to change the rules around crowdfunding. Um, so it, each time, I mean, you started with iTunes, no thank you, uh, but then you move through the steps and go, okay, right. And it is in that kind of Kickstarter Indiegogo world now, although that's reaching saturation and in come the archons to control it. So you pick up and you move further along down the beach. But um, yes, as long as it's a nomadic taste tribe, I like the idea. I mean, for me, like I've been consuming more, I hate the word consuming, uh, podcasts yeah. lately. Me too. And that's, I mean, like, I think Singapore, you have to be a registered blogger. Is that? That doesn't surprise me. Like, are we heading towards a, a, a thing where if you want to be on iTunes, you need to get a, a podcast registration? You are. Um, but I mean, that's always been the case. Um, some of the podcasts I've stopped listening to because they've... Uh, been co-opted um, mm-hmm. one of them was kicked off iTunes recently um, and probably rightly so <laughs> uh, 
Um, Holocaust denial doesn't go over well. Um, yeah, so I stopped listening to that one, but they've been kicked off. Um, but it does, inevitably, these platforms um, uh, are temporary. That's the whole point. Mm -hmm. uh, because things can't, liberational things can't exist for very long um, down here. So as long as it's a nomadic taste tribe, yes. And there will be, I mean, each time it's a very Princess Leia way of seeing things, but each time these things get co-opted, you just move further along down the page. And if it means we go, <laughs> if it means we end up like going back to sending little, like Doris Lessing used to communicate pretty much exclusively by postcards from the British Museum, oh. um, which I think is just adorable. Uh, but if, if we go back to communicating in that kind of really odd way, then that's the, that's what it is. That's the next step. Uh, and you just keep moving until postcards get co-opted and you move further along down the beach because the um, the iconic co-option doesn't lead to worse and worse technology. Sometimes it's better, sometimes it's worse. Mm -hmm. So it's not like um, they're co-opting everything and then all we're left with is postcards and then soon we'll just be scratching notes in the dirt until there's no more dirt. It doesn't really work like that. Sometimes uh, things get... I don't think they saw... Well, I don't think they anticipated crowdfunding being as uh, the, the take up of crowdfunding being what uh, what it was. Um, so that's quite good. But then, what is the next step? Can you have a sort of um, tour network crowdfund? You potentially can with um, Bitcoin or something. Well, hopefully not Bitcoin, because I'm highly suspicious of Bitcoin. But um, I, I mean, the tour network's been co-opted as well. But the point is. You can kind of move that behavior with the taste track further along. Um, there will be other ways. Now that the, the, the platonic ideal of crowdfunding exists, um, mm. there will be ways of moving it further along. Or we just choose different overlords and use Alibaba. Um, I actually think that will happen. Um, I think right. as they're about to IPO, and it will be the biggest IPO in history. Um, I think we have, and everyone should go and get their Alibaba name now. Um, they have an active customer base of 267 million, which is greater than the adult population of the US. Um, wow. That's kind, of, that's kind of like if Etsy and eBay had a baby, that's what Alibaba is. Um, so it's a uh, transactional platform mm -hmm. for small businesses connecting with other people. Uh, and obviously, it has. Chinese government fingers in it rather than US government fingers in it, but maybe they'll be better if you don't live in either of these regimes. Well, that's um, and you know, looking at the future, it's like which one is going to have more influence in ten years or whatever. Yeah, you know, um, I guess that depends on on how the Pacific pivot plans out. Mm. I'll tell you, I'm, the US won't um, won't lose the top dog spot nicely. So um, you kind of have. You could almost make the case that every outgoing empire destroys itself um, coming up against the upcoming empire, mm. um, which doesn't quite work, but it does um, with, say, the British Empire destroying itself. Well, it destroys itself saving the world from another empire, um, and we'll potentially see what happens with, um, uh, with China and Russia. I still don't think um, that will be the case, but... Um, hopefully we just end up in a multipolar world rather than a unipolar one and so have lots of little Saurons rather than one big one um, and potentially that's progress 
This is more gaps that way. <coughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, and I really do think that's happening. Um, well, it is happening. It's, it's not an opinion. Um, that is happening. People, I've been promoting it like no one's noticed. No one in Esoterica is going to be talking about um, SEC, looming SEC crowdfunding rules. But um, they tell you a lot more about reality than um, what you did for the Harvest Festival. Definitely. Okay, so picking back up on sort of internet culture versus the archons. Mm-hmm. Twitter. So we've talked about the you've talked about the Carter Carter shift scale before, sure. and um I like the notion of what's his name the guy who popularizes it um Michio Kaku. Yep. It talks about the internet and email and, and Twitter as sort of a type one telephone, type one civilization telephone. Yeah. So when we look at the mess, so you've quit Facebook, right? I still have the account because I need it for work, but um I don't I don't log into it um. By the way, that's that's a revelation. Like they uh, talk about a bad breakup. Uh, I wake up every morning and there are three emails from Facebook going, "You have um, like you have notifications and statuses waiting for you." And yesterday or the day before, there was a really interesting one, which I think they're going to start redirecting my Facebook messages to my email. It says your Facebook email is no longer blah blah blah. We'll send it to this email instead. Wow. I'm getting lots of like, come back, come back, come back. <laughs> you can check out anytime you like. Yeah, it just strengthens yeah it's the result. And also, I can't the the change in my mood and how I enjoy my days is mm-hmm. incredible. It's like um, I cured a couple of times now episodic depression with entheogen, and that's fucking night and day. You take the mushrooms, you have a great trip. The next day, you go, yeah. No more depression. That's quite cool. Um, it feels like that is the night and day change, and to the point where I, I can only posit that half of it is non-physical. The physical aspect is there because you have DARPA-funded um, psychological studies where they play us like the proverbial poor cops. Mm. Uh, what happens to users if they only had negative stuff show up on their Facebook feed versus positive, and, and blah 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 blah, and also. And I don't really suffer from that much status anxiety because I don't want the things that the world wants. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but obviously, I consciously don't suffer from status anxiety, but it must clearly be um, somewhere in there because that's the other part of it. Like, oh, God, so these awful people I knew from high school now have giant houses in Byron Bay or whatever. And, and like, I don't get jealous, but I, I must somewhere <laughs> inside me that that's happening. Yeah. Uh, and, it is amazing to not like. I would recommend it to everyone. I've only missed two birthday parties. Worth it. So what 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 I sort of going with that is Twitter are now talking about the algorithmic intrusion or manipulation. Yeah. Do you think that's a iconic um, manipulation to sort of head off this sort of emergent type one telephone sort of global culture, or they just um, can't resist trying to make a buck? Or both. Yeah, that, I, I actually know quite a bit about um, Twitter's PL and its strategy because I've um, looked into it for work reasons in, in some detail. Um, it's, it's purely economic, and whether, whether that is, um, whether you interpret, so that would be metaphorically iconic, mm. which is um, these platforms. And bear in mind, like the platform is like Jack, um, he is basically me in the 90s. I mean, terrible, spiky hair. <laughs> 
invisible Hakeem Bay. Like, uh, Twitter comes from that kind of 90s chaos um, digital utopianism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, unfortunately, it's grown into this sort of um, news sharing platform with record, which I, I love. I, like, I will say now, I get, I'm aware of the financials of it, and I'm aware that they're slightly better at being, um, or slightly worse at being co-opted by the shadow state, but they still are, obviously. Mm. Um, but for me, the trade-off, um, there's more upside than downside in being involved in Twitter still. Um, and I anticipate, like, um, basically, the, the economics of the feed algorithm is that they've been testing the sort of full image in the feed now. I mean, for the last year and a half, they've been doing everything they can to make the actual web or mobile-based platform. So the app on mobile or the desktop experience actually really good because historically it wasn't. Historically, TweetDeck was a, was a better use of it. Yeah. And so um, but they've been closing down um, API functionality to sort of starve the oxygen out yeah. of the um, third-party world. Um, but also simultaneously improving the on-site experience. And I tell you what, I um, I use the desktop experience. Like when I get to work, obviously you don't open up Facebook, but you open up the things you need. I work a lot on web-based platforms. Twitter's open all day. Um, and it never used to be. It used to be, um, I'd either use Silverbird or TweetDeck or whatever. But now it's it's the on-site platform, no question. And um, this algorithm change is coming on the back of the success of um, full images appearing in the feed. So you combine that, the full image appearing in the feed with algorithms, and you have that kind of Facebook ruination where they can make more money. Um, or some money, let's be clear, they're not, they're not really profitable. Uh, it, they are in that weird backwards way that everyone thinks Silicon Valley companies are, but really not that many of them. <laughs> mm. Mm. Um, so yeah, I suspect, at least in the medium term, you'll be able to de-algorithm it like with a switch. Um, but then eventually you won't be able to. But by then, there'll be a new Twitter. There'll be another um, platform, and, and off we move down the beach. Well, there's, you know about Hello? Yeah. Yeah. I'm already seeing a migration um, there. Whether that, you know, um, whether that scales. Um, I'm, I'm not sure what a new Twitter, what I would want from a new Twitter. I, want, I would want the kind of quote-unquote pure Twitter experience. But um, what else do I want? Do you know what? I quite like check-ins. I'm surprised Twitter doesn't do check-ins. Oh. So they're weird. So it's not just let's replicate a non-algorithm Twitter. It's let's take the non-algorithm Twitter functionality and what is the next step. I mean, the world has changed again since Twitter happened. Mm. So um, yeah. So we'll see. I'm not. I'm not going to move yet because I think um, when you look at it, it falls into Jakob Nielsen's um, sort of classic um, one percent content creators and then sort of five percent or four percent lurkers. Um, and then sort of that 90% audience passivity thing. Twitter suffers from, there's a large user base, a slightly growing active user base, but how they, they've changed how they define active, um, there's people who are actually open up the platform rather than people who tweet, or if they tweet, it's once a month. And now that doesn't constitute active as far as I'm concerned. So they are reliant, uh, as a companies like Yelp, they're reliant on a lot, a much smaller pool of people than you actually think. And if they piss them off, they're fucked. Mm. So um, that's where they're going with the algorithm thing. Like you, if they piss them off too much, you only need to lose 0.2% of active users, and you fucked the whole platform. So uh, that's what they're trying to get right. Interesting. Interesting. It also means that I'm not that bothered about the algorithm because they'll they'll roll back for as long as possible, and by then something else will come along. Yeah, no, I agree. 
So is that where you? No, hang on. We got sidetracked again. You wanted. We wanted to talk about Kardashev in communication, maybe. <laughs> oh, just what that looks like. I mean, that's definitely. I think Twitter has played a part in at least connecting the globe as to itself. Do you know what I mean? Like. Well, what I think what it's done is allowed. Uh, and I, we have to one thing or the other, whether it ends with um, a masculine rejection or not, one way or another, we have to thank the building up of digital infrastructure for teaching us about weak networks and consciously created networks. Mm-hmm. Um, they haven't really existed in a scalable form before, and they haven't been able to be measured before. I um, read an interesting interview with um, a guy who must have been in his 80s or 90s. He was an economist and his son is an economist. And so they had this interview about what's changed in economics over the course of the 20th century. And the older one was like, computing, you have no idea. Um, like we were, we were doing things like GDP forecast and probabilistic analysis, like manually like writing it into large A3 notes. Um, the data we can crunch to get these learnings is, is hugely valuable as long as you are extracting learnings that can be used in the real world. And, uh, and I think that's the goal of, um, say, nomadic taste tribes, mm-hmm. is to use these platforms, um, but also to, to learn what uh, consciously created weak networks um, or how they function because who knows what? Like we, we could seriously get EMP'd out of like, <laughs> out of the internet at some stage. But Definitely. That behaviorism. I mean, we like it's it's a guarantee. It's guaranteed that it will happen on a CME um, plasma injector basis at some stage. Mm. Um, and if it does happen, obviously millions will die because the sort of food and emergency response infrastructure is wholly reliant on um, on electronic communication. But uh, leaving aside that disaster. Without the internet, I still think, assuming we had some form of communication, even if it's British Museum postcards, I still think the consciously created network behavior uh, can survive, uh, and it will just it will it will mutate into whatever it is, and that would be, and that's quite good. Um, I think that's one of the one of the goals of yeah, nomadic taste tribes should be keep that in the back of your head. Um, yeah. All this talk makes it sound like I've got like a bomb shelter filled with cans. <laughs> yeah, I don't, but um, this is what happens when you can kind of incorporate the eschaton into personal pathology. It allows you to think about what is valuable and what isn't in the world, so you can separate the idea of networks from digital platforms, which when they started, I said they didn't, and fucking the 90s was great, with its dial-up and um, yeah, silly haircuts and hack the future crap um damn right <laughs> yeah i was there too yeah <laughs> no definitely i mean um the you know the the anthem motto find the others right a- applies and maintaining multiple connections not just one exactly um I... and in particular one of the things they've done a bit of network theory is that um more weak links uh is a healthier network than a few strong links, mm-hmm. uh, and that's some that like that is uh, network learnings that we didn't have outside the digital age, and specifically the post-social media age. Um, 
So you have a healthier network with multiple weak links um, than you do, um, which is actually counterintuitive, but that appears like the, the data bear it up. Um, it's that, I think that's actually based on LinkedIn research, but... Um, what? <laughs> they use LinkedIn as an example, but that kind of weak link thing, I think, is exactly what the sort of different esoteric quasi-digital tribes Ah, I think their networks are weak links. Well, they, by, you're on the other side of the world. They, they, I am. That is a definition of a weak link. <laughs> and all my, um, I have, I have to sit here and look and Google the time across the world to figure out when people are awake. So I, I can talk to them. very well. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to set up like yeah, three Australia, clocks. Yeah, Australia's not that bad for it. I mean, because I get up early and, and whatever. Australia, mm. I still get a good few hour crossover. The ones I miss the most are West Coast, which Australia does not too badly either. Mm. It's not really that. It's the opposite side of the world, but it can kind of work in a way that um, I barely speak to my Californians online um, because just the world. <laughs> yeah. That's hard. But we have the slow chat sort of asymmetric thing going on, so that works. Mm. Oh, internet newsletters. What do you think about them then? I mean, that's that's where the '90s started for me. Newsletters. Yeah, mailing lists, and there seems to be a retreat to that. That seems to be the other thing. Well, yeah, um, but that is that is the technology platform by which you see the formation of discrete weak network. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and they, I mean, they used I, I use them at work. They're um, they're very uh, they're a very powerful media asset because they're platform agnostic, uh, and you can sort of track engagement with things like open rates, so you know. Um, how this is going? Um, I it's come up a couple of times whether I should uh, whether I can take the whether I should take the content in that direction. Um, but I kind of think um, I've made the conscious decision to sort of do a. Uh, it, it's almost like the content only appeals to a small subset of the actual traffic anyway, which would be the the mailing list people, but it's out there in the public. And I was about to say pearls before swine, but I'm like, that's really mean. I don't actually mean, <laughs> I don't mean it like that. Um, so in theory, I like the idea, but again, it's um, it's uh, it's a manifestation of the behavior rather than the development of the technology. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, uh, I still have that. My last vestigial piece of digital utopianism is a belief in sharing, mm. um, and that's where I kind of go. I mean, you can hit the forward button on the mailing list to be sure, um, but that's where I kind of go. Ah, um, it's certainly a valid way of communicating because people can, people are often more um, open or more willing to. Uh, move further out on the speculative branch in a quote-unquote closed environment. It's not closed, it's, it's the illusion of closure, mm -hmm. um, but you can still kind of do it. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. But you get that behind paywalls. Um, you get that in any kind of sort of paid community environment. Once people are inside the, uh, past the bouncer, they sort of let their hair down a bit. Right. What would be an example of that? Um, well, Pete Carroll's Arcanorium College, so those kind of sites where the, the money is nominal, but behind uh -huh. it there's a forum or, or a place where people gather um, digitally, uh, and 
the discourse is different internally rather than externally because people have the the money is a is a proxy for commitment, um, and so you're in this space where you sort of everyone else who's there has demonstrated uh, an alignment by actually giving money rather than just being speculative trolls or what have you. Interesting. It's kind of the same with the mailing list, although. Um, a free one you can still just sign up, but people have to actually go to the effort of signing themselves up. Yeah, no, definitely. You have a you have a door that changes the behavior inside it and outside it. So do you think um, Patron falls into that category? Uh, I don't know. How, you mean Patreon? That sort of yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how I feel about Patreon. I am. Um, I'm not sure if it's different enough from Kickstarter for me to give a shit. Like, um, I mm-hmm. will. Why am I just giving money to an artist? Like, I owe money to a project. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where, I mean, it, it might suit some people. Um, but I, I mean, I have. I've um, bought a fantastic um, sort of hand-drawn um, Goetia Keo Solomon. Uh, and I paid loads of money for it. I paid like 70 quid for it on, on Kickstarter because this guy had literally painted all, all 72 demons and reprinted his fucking amazing book and whatever and that's a project like he's clearly an artist mm-hmm. um, but I'm not just giving him money to do fucking art like yeah I'll have that book please I know it's expensive but I went in on that project so I'm not sure how I feel about I'm not sure if Patreon is a, uh, whether it's a feature or whether it's a company to use that sort of Silicon Valley talk right. I don't know how I feel it just seems like um, it just seems like not begging, that's me. I, I, I don't get it. As, I mean, I am writing a couple of books. I mm-hmm. I guess I'm a content creator. I don't... I will never use Patreon. <laughs> I may have a very expensive project that would potentially require crowdfunding, although I hope not. Um, but I wouldn't use Patreon. I, I don't know. Yeah. It, 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 it doesn't resonate with me um, behaviorally. Interesting. Yeah, I haven't looked into it much. It's just sort of a bit on the radar. Like, I get that there are some things, um, I think um, Miguel, Miguel Connor, who does Aeon Bite Nazi Radio, um, he's got one because a, a sort of weekly podcast mm-hmm. is a um, is a kind of like continuous cost operation, so I get that. Mm. Um, but even then, I'm like, um, for some reason, I guess maybe it's just because of how I think of creative projects. And I'm like, well, why don't you kickstart it in seasons? But if you say I'm kickstarting ten episodes of this, that makes more sense to me. Then hey, can you please give me a continuous amount of money to keep doing this, even if it's a small amount? Um, I mean, it's you know, it's his life. Um, but yeah, I would prefer to see him kickstart um, another series. So if he starts chunking like that, so I'm going to kickstart the series. I'm going to get Alan Moore. I'm going to do blah 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 blah. Three, here's your money. Um, and that's what I would. Uh, that's how I see the upside of crowdfunding. I guess. Mm. Interesting. I just think um, there's only so much merch you can buy. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. So, um, it's nice to have like a, a Welcome to Night Vale mug and a whatever hipster collectible well, yeah, stuff. Like, what if, yeah, do I want? It's true. The mugs are a good example. It's like, how many, yeah, how many podcast mugs do I need? Mm. Mm. Um, but this is all, I mean, it's a, it's a very nascent economy. Exactly. So it's it's only sort of really kicked off in earnest in the last eighteen months. So it's um, it's doing what a healthy economy, i.e., not ours, um, is doing, which is um, learning by 
an at least 80 or 90 percent failure rate mm-hmm. uh, and that's good you know no definitely that's a more positive note to finish on i think yeah that's true <laughs> fucking hell all my talks are so grim <laughs> yeah but you know we're talking that's positive how can't it happen <laughs> well thanks so much for making time no not at all it will be good to uh, to mess people up with two Australian accents. Yeah. All right. Um, I'll let you go, mate. Cool. All right. See ya. Cheers. Bye. Look in my eyes. What do you see? The cult of